We're going to begin with Isaiah 45 this morning. Look at that text. I want us to think about the attribute of God, which is called God's decrees, uh, God's declarations, that we have a God who makes eternal, unchangeable, all-wise plans. Um, I grew up hearing people say, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Well, the more I thought about that, I said, it doesn't seem too wonderful for me. I've got pain. I've got affliction. Is that in the plan? Did God plan pain? Did he plan affliction? And do you call that wonderful? The more I thought about it, I said, whoever said God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life has not lived very long. Or he hasn't researched very thoroughly because it's not all wonderful. And we know it's not all wonderful. So what does that mean? Does God decree it? Does God plan the affliction, the calamity that we have to face? Does he not plan it? Does he create the world and the world just spins without his plan? Boy, that's a scary thought. So as you think about all of that, then you you even ask, well, if it's his plan, where does sin fit in? Did he plan that? Do I have a choice? Where are we in this plan of God? Yes, we do have a God who makes plans, a plan, an eternal, all-wise, wonderful plan And when we really come face to face with his plan, his decrees, it actually gives us a lot of joy and a lot of assurance and a lot of comfort. So we do need to know the decreeing, declaring God that we have and not shy away just because those questions sometimes seem so deep or or troubling. Let's look at God's plan. It's really God's plan that holds us. I'm just going to give you one illustration of that in Isaiah 46. Here's a passage where God is talking about his plan with his people, and he's talking about it during a time uh, when the people of God were about to be taken to Babylon. They were going to be captured. God was going to wipe out Jerusalem and the national church, and he was going to take his people to Babylon. And he begins this chapter talking about the Babylonian gods, which are uh, Nebo and, uh, and Baal. So that's the two subjects that we start with. Let me just walk us through it. Isaiah 46, the first couple of verses. Baal has bowed down. Nebo stoops over. Their images are consigned to the beast and the cattle. The things that you carry are burdensome, a load for the weary beast. They stooped over. They have bowed down together. They could not rescue the burden, but have themselves gone into captivity. What he's describing there is these two Babylonian gods, um, they, they are limping. They're barely gods at all at this point. And at some point, he says, they, they're even taken into captivity. He's hinting to the fact that uh, the Medes and the Persians will come and take the Babylonians uh, and their gods away. It's also, I think, pointing to Christ when, when Christ is raised up against all false idols and all false gods. All gods that seem to have a plan for your life, 
they, they limp, they fall down. They're not ultimately in control, and God begins to tell us that. And he's, he's pointing to a time in Israel's life when he says, all of this should just turn you from sin. This calamity that you face is there for a purpose. Verse 3, he says, listen to me, O house of Jacob, and all the remnant of the house of Israel, you who have uh, been born by me from birth and have been carried away from the womb, even to your old age I will be the same, and even to your gray in years I will bear you. I've done it. I will carry you, and I will bear you, and I will deliver you. God says, just stop, listen to me, think about my plans. Yes, I'm taking you into Babylon. You're a remnant now. I've wiped out many of you, and you're going to be destroyed. He says, but listen to me. He says, I, did your mother not have a plan? You know, it gives us kind of the illustration of a mother who carries us. He says, from the womb, he says, I had a plan. From your womb to carry you. And I have a plan, even when you get gray-headed and old and you're about to die, I still have a plan. And you start to stop to think about that. Every one of us who've been a parent, and every parent you've known, before that child is even born, the first child, mom and dad have a plan. I will take care of this baby. And they plan that out, and they plan that forever. doesn't matter what happens to that baby they are there to take care of that child. We have those plans, and God's using that illustration saying, I got this plan for you. I've always had a plan for you, to take care of you, to minister to you. Verses 5 through 7, he says, So to whom would you liken me and make me equal and compare me? That would, that would be alike. I mean, who would come close? Those who lavish gold from the purse... And weigh silver on the scale, hire a goldsmith, and makes it into a god. They bow down, indeed, they worship it, they lift it up upon their shoulder, they carry it, they set it in its place, and it stands there, it doesn't move from its place. Though one may cry out to it, it cannot answer, it cannot deliver him from his distress. God says, just stop a minute and think about, you know, what's going on? Who would you compare me to? And what's going on here is, you're in Jerusalem, you're being carried to Babylon, you get to Babylon, Babylon's in charge, you might start thinking, Babylonian gods seem to be pretty good. Maybe they're a little more favorable than my God. God says, Who, you're, you're comparing me to them? To, to Baal and Nebo, really? Who would you compare? How am I like them? Says they're gods, you set them up, you cry to them, and they can't even answer. Why do you even go there in your thoughts, thinking that it would be somehow better to live outside the God who has a plan for you? God says, really? That doesn't make sense. Who, who sets the world in order? Who sets the world on its foundation? Where were you when I put the stars and moon in the place? I mean, just who do you compare me to? And really, you can do that with all false religions. Ask them, when their God established the earth? When did they establish a salvation plan? And these false gods, their plan for us is always an afterthought. And God says, it's not that way with me. 
Why do you compare me to someone else? It just doesn't make sense. Verse 8 says, says, remember this and be assured, recall it to mind. Don't miss this. You transgressors. See, God's dealing with sinners. He says, remember this, you sinners. You got a problem with sin. That's why you're in the predicament you're in. And I'm trying to show that to you. And you're off thinking that life would be better under the Babylonian gods? Really? They'll fall down and they'll crumble and that won't work. Verse 9, remember the former things long past, for I am God. There's no other. I am God. And there's no one like me. Here's his plan. Declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things which have not been done, saying, my purpose, God's plan will be established, and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my purpose from a far country. Truly I've spoken, truly I will bring it to pass. I have planned it, surely I will do it. Listen to me, you stubborn-minded. There's the sinners again. Listen, you sinners. Stubborn-minded who are far from righteousness. I bring near my righteousness. It's not far off. And my salvation will not delay. And I will grant salvation in Zion and my glory for Israel. God basically saying, remember my plan? I'm the God who knows the end from the beginning. I'm the God who has planned life for you, and without this plan, there is no righteousness, you sinners. There's no salvation, you sinners. And there's no glory. The plan of God is crucial. It's the plan of God that holds you. I'm the God who plans your righteousness, your salvation, and your glory. I have a plan. I have established it, and it will come to pass. That's who I am. Compare that. No one else compares. No one else has that kind of plan for us. It's interesting. You don't see it so much here in the Hebrew, but you do see it in the Greek, that God often uses the word plan in the singular, which is so unlike us give you an example. Look at Acts 2, verse 23. Here's the plan of Christ to die on the cross. And when you, you see it, it's like, really? Wow. That's singular. Acts 2, 23 says, this man, speaking of Christ, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. Well, that's in the singular. Christ went to the cross because it was in the singular, predetermined and plan and foreknowledge of God. That's a concept too big for us. We, we think in, in different acts. We think in sequence. I do. Uh, you know, when I get up in the morning, I have a plan. But I have to kind of think through what's going to happen today. And I have a plan to get up. I have a plan to eat breakfast. I have a plan to brush my teeth. I have a plan to 
you know, read my Bible, to pray, to get in the car, to drive here. There's these sequences. You put something else in that may change those plans. But I think about a multitude of things when I think about what my plan is for today. God is able to take all of those things and put them together as though they're one thing and make a plan. I plan for a people, as Jonathan read earlier, that is before him, holy, blameless, and before him in love. I plan for that. And in that plan already is included Christ coming, dying on the cross, redeeming us, calling us to himself. It's, it's part of that, that one plan that God has for us. Uh, why is that important? Because God says, as he says back in Isaiah 45, his plan can't be thwarted. It's, it's one singular plan that has been established. And just because you move around some parts, it will not alter God's plan. Because his plan includes everything. It needs to be included for it to be established and for it to be carried out. Um, none of us plan that way, but God does. Uh, look at uh, the passage again that uh, Jonathan had us read earlier, just a, a few verses. Ephesians 1, verse 3 and 4. And that plan there, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be, I mean, just, Jonathan was right. It's, it's one long sentence from Ephesians 1, verse 3, all the way down to Ephesians 1, verse 14. As, as you look at that, I think Paul begins to, he gets so excited when he stops to think about our God and Father and his plan. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy, blameless, and before him in love. Now think about it. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ because he has a plan. And his plan is to bless us, where? In with not just bless us, but bless us with every spiritual blessing. How much is that? Wow. And not only to bless us with every spiritual blessing, but to bless us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. I don't know about you, but I think maybe that's the end. But it's certainly not the beginning. The beginning, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that's certainly a beginning. Something before the foundation of the world. He chose us before, in the beginning, before he even created the world. The world was void and formless and dark. Before he said, let there be light, he chose us in Christ. That we would be in him, blameless, holy, and before him in love. Before he said, and I'm taking you from there to heavenly places, and there I'm going to bless you with every spiritual blessing. That's the plan. Wow. How awesome and glorious it is to worship and serve a planning, declaring, decreeing God. 
Because that plan cannot be thwarted. It can't be disestablished. It's God's plan for us in Christ. See, how do you get there? It's in Christ. He has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. He has chosen us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless and before him alone. So when you see that, you see obviously the need for Christ. Blessed be a God with that kind of plan. That he knows the end as well as the beginning. That's what he's showing us. Who do you compare that to? And when you, when you understand that's how great and awesome it is for God to plan, it should bring us great hope, great comfort. It certainly brings us righteousness in Christ. It brings us salvation in Christ. It brings us glory in Christ. But it also guides us and it directs us and comforts us. Um, I'll give you an example of that. Um, look at Acts 15. This is the uh, famous uh, passage of the Jerusalem Council. And the biggest, perhaps, hurdle the Jews had in the first generation of the New Testament church is this hurdle of how the national Jewish church becomes an international entity. They struggled with that because uh, ever since uh, they began under um, King David, they were a national church. They saw themselves as God's national people. And they get to this this place where the Apostle Paul starts preaching to Gentiles, non-Jews. And Gentiles start repenting and believing in Christ and coming to faith. And the Jews said, wait, we're the special people. The gospel is supposed to come to us. And Paul says, yes, it comes to the Jew first, but also to the Gentile. And that created controversy. And they didn't know how to solve it. I thought we were a Jewish church, and now you're taking it to the Gentiles, and that's mixing us, and they didn't know what to do with that. And in the Jerusalem Council, how did they solve it? They solved it by the Apostle James standing up and says, I want to remind you of the plan of God. Let me read that to you, Acts chapter 15, as he reads them or reminds them of the plan. He says, if you know the plan, it solves the problem. Really, knowing the plan of God solves a host of problems. And here's, it certainly serves, solves this one. So in verse 13, it says, after they had stopped speaking, like everybody wanted to argue and speak about it for a while, and James, they get a little lull in the action. James answered and said, brethren, listen to me. Simon, Peter uh, has been preaching or teaching them, Simon has related how God first concerned himself about taking from among the Gentiles a people for his name. He says, with this, so basically he's saying, Peter's right. Simon's been telling us that that's what God's doing. He says, but let me remind you of verse 15, the words of the prophets. Because the words of the prophets agree with Peter. And he basically presents what the prophets have already said. It says, verse 16, After these things I will return, and I will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen, and I will rebuild its ruins, and 
I will restore it so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from long ago. Therefore, it is my judgment that we do not trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles. Now, what's James saying there? James stands up. I don't know what he had been reading. I assume this, that morning he had been reading in the book of Amos because he quotes Amos. It's like, you know, a funny thing happened on my way to the Jerusalem council. I was reading Amos, and Amos agrees with everything Peter's been saying. And it's interesting, isn't it? Amos was written before Samaria was captured by Assyria, and Amos even points that out in his text. He says, God has told me we're going to be destroyed as a national people, and we're going to be taken to Assyria, and then we're going to be destroyed again and taken to Babylon. He says, but I'm going to let you rebuild the temple. I'm going to let you be back in Jerusalem for a while, but I am going to call my people from the Gentiles. And Amos is really strong, chapter 9. He says, but before I do that, I am going to take the national church and wipe it from the face of the earth. And then I'm going to go to the Gentiles. James says, that's what Amos says. That's the prophets. That's the inerrant word of God. That's the plan. If God plans to save Gentiles along with Jews, we just need to get out of the way. You don't mess with the plan of God. It is established. It will happen with or without us. Let's embrace the plan of God rather than trying to fight it. And the people says, oh, well, if that's what God is doing, then that's God's plan, and that changes everything. And we need to, again, see the value of getting into God's Word, knowing His plan, because that directs us. Our problems are absolved. They're, 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 they melt away when we know the plan of God. God has a plan for our lives God is directing us. It might not always be wonderful, but God does have a plan. And God's plans change everything. It keeps us from running into a void again. Um, I've shared before the uh, prayer request. We got one, one Sunday on the, for the prayer chain. It says, I want to thank God that he has that he's so big, he holds the whole world in his plan, or in his hand. I was saying plan. And when I saw that and knew that it came from one of our special needs saints, it just confirmed for me what I see over and over and over again. Many times, our special needs saints are the smartest, most loving people that I ever meet. I can't wait to get to heaven to see God's special purposes unfold before us, for those special saints, is that first of all, this guy gets that God holds the whole world in his hands. And that means that if he holds the whole world, well, first of all, even before that, it's not a prayer request, it's a prayer praise. Blessing God. Because God is big enough to hold the whole world. 
But what that means, why that is a blessing, if God holds the whole world, then that means his life and no one's life is an accident. It's part of this thing that's in the hand of God. That's so intelligent. And it is so loving. Because you see his praise and adoration for this God who holds even him. When we get the plan of God, we are graced with strength and intelligence and comfort and love. A lot of people, like Isaiah 45, you sinners, you just don't get it. We need to get it and see the beauty of it. Well, what do you do with sin? If God holds the whole world, does he also hold sin? And did God plan sin? Is God the author of sin? Well, the answer is easy. It's complicated and easy at the same time. Look at Proverbs 16. I'm just going to give you a couple of passages to see uh, this in somewhat simplistic terms. But Proverbs 16, verse 4 says, The Lord has made everything for its own purpose, even the wicked for the day of evil. So yes, God's the creator. He's made everything. He's even made sinners like you and me. And some of us sinners choose To sin, 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 and never stop sinning to the day of judgment, to the day of evil. What we see in this passage that we don't need to miss is a creator-creature distinction. God never says he sins. God is holy, holy, holy. God is without sin. He is light and there's no darkness in him. It's the sinner, the creature, that is always responsible for his own sin. And even in this passage, it says, yeah, God creates, but it's the creature who sins. And the creature is the one in the day of judgment who will be responsible for his sin. It's not God, because God created him. The creature is responsible creature. We are not... um, well, several things. God is, is not the cause of sin by creating the creature. The creature is always described as the one who is sinning, causing the sin. If God were the proximate cause of sin, then every action by sinners, every action on earth would be God in motion if God's causing everything. And that's pantheism. That's the heresy of pantheism. The heresy is they, they fail to see the creator-creature distinction, that we're not all just one glob in motion. That there's a creator who's over us, and we're creatures. So it's not pantheistic. It's not everything God in motion. God is not moving sin. God is not causing sin. We are. God's given us the ability to sin. But uh, as you think through that, we're not robots. We're not impersonal machines. 
That keeps us away from fatalism. It's like, I can't do anything. It's just determined. No, we can do things. God's created us so that we have these choices. The fact that we choose to sin, it's, it's our responsibility, our fault, not God's. So we don't go the route of fatalism, and we don't go the route of pantheism. We have a creator. We are creatures, and we're created responsible not to sin. That we do sin, we can't blame God for it. So uh, to think through that. Uh, how about calamity? When God creates calamity, look at Isaiah 45. Uh, let me read a few verses. Verses six, 5, 6, and 7. It says, I am the Lord and there's no other. Besides me, there's no God. I will gird you, though you have not known me, that men may know from the rising to the setting of the sun that there is no one besides me. I am the Lord. There's no other. The one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. So yes, God creates calamity. God creates times of pain and adversity, but never with ill intent, never as an act of sin, nothing ever in rebellion against his own moral standard and in nature of holiness. We're the one who takes ourselves and, and rebels against God and moves in a way contrary to God's holiness and his standard. Um, and say it another way, God's allows, God permits sin. He creates us and he permits, he allows us to respond to him in sin, in rebellion. Look at Acts 14, verse 16. That language is found there. Acts 14, verse 16 says, in the generations gone by, he permitted See, there's the language. He permitted all the nations to go their own way. So God allows it. God permits it. He didn't create us as robots. But he doesn't cause it. Look over at Acts 17, uh, verse 30. It says, Therefore, having, been over, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. God says, You've been acting in ignorance. My admonition to you is to turn from that ignorance to repent. Um, now, two other quick things. If God's not to cause the sin, so does the sin go contrary to his will? Does sin then, when it goes contrary to his will, does it thwart his plan? And I'll give you an example that God can prevent sin so that it doesn't thwart his plan. And God can also use sin so that it doesn't thwart his plan. And I'll give you two examples of that. First of all, I love this one, Abimelech. Uh, turn to Genesis chapter 20. I believe that's right. Uh, yeah, Genesis 20, verse 6. And this is a story, you remember, where Abraham is, is, is going into Abimelech's territory and his wife is, is so drop-dead gorgeous, he's afraid people are going to grab him, grab her from him, and Abimelech does that. 
And Abimelech wants Sarah to be his wife. Verse 6 of Genesis 20. Then God said to him in a dream. So God is speaking to a Gentile king named Abimelech in this verse through a dream. Then God said to him in the dream, Yes, I know that in the integrity of your heart you have done this. And I also kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Wow. God says, I, I know, Abimelech, you're, you're a fairly good king. No ill intent. Kings get wives. And you saw this beautiful woman. Her husband didn't claim her, so you took her. He says, but I kept you from sinning. You didn't commit adultery with her, which would have been an offensive action towards me. I kept you from that. What a blessing. I think of so many sins God has kept me from, where I'm right on the edge of sinning, and I want to sin. And God says, no, 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 I'm I'm not going to let you do that. Even though in my heart, I've already chosen it. Haven't you been there? What a blessing to have a God who can, even though we're choosing sin, he can say, yeah, but I'm not going to let you. And he keeps us from all the consequences of that. Well, he did, in this case, for Abimelech. So God can prevent sin if he chooses to. Second, God can also use it. In the same book, uh, you remember the story of Joseph. Let's just cut to the chase and get to the end. Genesis 20. In Genesis 20... um, excuse me, Genesis 50, verse 20. Um, Joseph responding to his brothers, he says, as, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about his present result, this present result, to preserve many people alive. Uh, Joseph doesn't um, mince words. He says, yeah, you, you stole me. You stole my rights. You sold me into slavery. What you did was evil, it was sinful, it was offensive, it was wrong in every measure. But God took it and through that action preserved a nation through me. He took that sinful action and he turned it for good. God can do that. Why is all that important? Because nothing can thwart the, the plan of God. You can go sin your field and suffer all the consequences, but you won't change the plan of God. God can prevent the sin if you're on the edge of changing his plan. He can use the sin. The sin has, sin never has power over our God. Even though he doesn't cause it, it's not greater than God. And it doesn't change his all-wise, eternal, established plans. That's such good news that if we're saved, we can be saved, and our sin won't keep it, keep us from being saved. God can secure us. God can embrace us eternally, that there's no sin that's greater than his grace his plan for us. You're caught in a great sin even this morning. Christ has power over that sin to cut it out of your life 
to draw you to himself and to turn it all around and work it together for good and to form you in the image of Christ. That's the power of our God and his ability to plan. Sin um, is never produced by God and is not over God. Why is that important? Because that secures God's plan. And what is his plan? Ultimately, his plan is his glory. Two quick verses on God's plan for his glory. Revelation 4, verse 11. says, worthy are you. So the elders fall down around the throne. Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and because of your will, your plan, they existed and were created. Worthy. God is worthy of all praise, adoration. We come week after week to jointly praise him because he is the planner. He has created all things. All things created by him and for him. So he deserves all praise for it. One other passage, Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. Verse 16, for by him, speaking of Christ, all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. And if I were writing scripture and I'm not, I would put right there, End of story. Because that's it. All things have been created by Christ, through Christ. And we don't even know all things yet. It says all things are created, both in the heavens. What have you seen created in the heavens unless you're calling it the stars and the galaxies? But all things are created in the heavens and on earth. The visible, we see visible creations. But there's a whole other dimension of invisible things that God has created through Christ. And thrones and dominions and rulers and authorities. And we've already seen even in heavenly places as well as here on earth. And if it's all God's creation, then it's for him, it's through him, and it's to him. And that's the end of the story. When we as his creatures are raised to be with him in heavenly places, there we give him all praise and adoration. It is to him because it's all from him. He knows the end from the beginning. That's his plan. And it's so exciting to be a part of that plan. Um, application I put down. But just, just stop and, and try to imagine for a minute a world without a planning, decreeing God. Try to, try to imagine a world without a plan. Um, 
what's the uh, John Lennon song? It was written back in the 70s. Um, how does it go? Imagine there were no heavens, no hell beneath us, only sky above us. Imagine, he says, I might be a dreamer, but I don't think I'm the only one. I'm thinking, you're not only a dreamer, you're a delusional dreamer. And it's such a popular song. It's been redone recently by Lady Gaga, Pearl Jam, American Idol. I mean, it just goes on and on. This, this thought, imagine with me a world without a heaven, without a hell, without religion, with no plan. If we had no plan, we could just all be brothers and be one. That's, that's crazy. There's no unity without some established plan. There's no unity without some absolute, inerrant, doctrinal truth we all embrace. There's no unity. There's no brotherhood of man. If we're sinful creatures, we are rebelling in against one another. The only hope is that there's a plan. That we're not spinning alone. But that God has created a plan to hold us. To forgive us. To redeem us. To glorify us. Without a plan, you just wish upon a star? Who do you compare God to? To chance? You say, good luck? Do you just walk around and say, whatever? Or do we say, according to the plan of God? Without a plan, there's no refuge in time of trouble. There's no one to run to. It's, every day is just up for chance. It's up for grabs. But with a plan, you don't have to read very far. You only have to read to the eighth chapter of the book where God says, you can forget worrying about global warming, that global warming is going to kill seed time and harvest. I promise to you, I put it in my plan, there will always be, as long as the earth lasts, seed time and harvest. There will be seasons. It's according to the plan. There will be summer and winter and fall and spring because God planned it since the day of the flood. When we understand the plan, life holds together and it makes sense. But imagine a world without a plan. And yet we have so many trying to go there. And it's a lie of the devil. It's deceptive. It doesn't bring security. It doesn't bring comfort. It doesn't bring righteousness. It doesn't bring salvation. And it doesn't bring glory. You watch the weather, and when you watch the weather, our weather typically comes from the west and goes to the east. The only time it doesn't do that is in typically times of calamity, storms where God 
is bringing something else. Why do we count on that? If the weatherman says, okay, we've got this storm in New Orleans and it's going to hit us on Tuesday and we're going to have rain. Why do we count on that? Because we know that's the way God's planned it. That's the way it moves. It always happens that way. Because of a plan, the sun always comes up tomorrow. And the moon always submits to the sun. And God continues to rotate this earth on its axis. How do you respond to a God with a plan? So I gave you five things to think about. How do we respond? Number one, let us renew our praise and thanks to God for his infinite wisdom and goodness. Another passage, Romans 11, verse 36, should encourage and incite that prayer uh, of praise. Romans eleven thirty six says, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Praise God uh, that the world is not spinning out of control. All things for him, from him, to him. Praise him. Reject the notion that the, the world's in chaotic state, but rather give gratitude to the God who's in charge. Number two, let us learn to enjoy the life God has given us with hope, love, comfort, and joy. Romans eight twenty eight. you know that. As all things work together for good to those who are called according to his purpose, those who love him. God says, I can, I can take whatever your situation is, no matter how entrenched you are in sin, and I can turn it and work it for good. That should give us hope, love, and comfort. Number three, recognize and enjoy the security of no surprises for God. Some of you love surprises, and I don't want to kill that joy for you. I hate surprises. Surprises startle me. I don't like surprises because I'm a planner. I like to plan. Well, I'm not saying I'm more like God. I just don't like surprises. But God has a nature where it's impossible for him to be surprised because he knows the end from the beginning. That's his nature to know that. Because he knows all things and it's over all things, nothing will startle him. Nothing will catch him by surprise. He says in Proverbs 16, 33, says, even when you roll the dice, he says, the dice are in God's lap. He says, I already know what you will roll. No surprises. Because there are no surprises for God, nothing's going to thwart his plan. He already knows what's coming. He already knows where he's taking us. He knows the end from the beginning, and that's a good thing. We never have to go to bed at night saying, what if, what if there's something that catches God by surprise? There will be no surprises for God. That establishes his the certainty of his plan. Number four, praise God and thank him that only because of him can we live with certainty and guarantee I mean, we love products that have guarantees, right? I love a warranty if I don't have to pay for it. You know, somebody says, this is lifetime guaranteed. If, if it breaks, bring it back, we'll replace it. I love that. That's the way it should be. Our life in Christ is that way. It's guaranteed in Christ. 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. I will walk into heaven one day, and there will be every spiritual blessing. It's guaranteed. There's a warranty. It's in Christ. He's already died to secure it for me. That's good news that the plan is guaranteed. Oh, it's proven. You know, without God's guarantee, there would be no love that's eternal. There'd be no marriage that works. There'd be no church. There'd be no promises. God's plan gives us all that and more. Number five, let us cease blaming others or God for our own, thing, for our own actions. We're the cause of sin. When we sin, we're responsible. Don't think you're going to go into heaven and say, yeah, but somebody else made me do it, or I couldn't help it. You created me, God. Adam's already tried that. Satan's already tried that. That doesn't work. What works is get right with God and man while it's still called today. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your eternal, unchangeable, unbelievably superior, unflappable plan. Lord, we praise and adore you from before the foundation of the world to the invisible spiritual blessings that await. We thank you for your plan. We're overwhelmed by your plan, the greatness, the beauty, the joy, the comfort it brings. Lord, let us be a people more engaged in worship and adoration, more throwing off anxiety, more secure in you. Help us, O Lord, to see the glories of having an incomparable God, not like the false gods of many religions. Help us to see the glory of our Redeemer, our Savior, even Jesus. We thank you, O Lord, for your truth this morning, for revealing yourself again to us. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.